What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What I do here is a daily live stream, and I put it out in podcast form. If you want to take part in the live streams, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, or better yet, go to the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Also, check out the website bitcoinandmarkets.com. Sign up for the free tier, get notified of all my content, get a free weekly newsletter. And there you can also become a full member and support me for $5 a month and support this unique perspective in Bitcoin. So I want to thank everyone that supports over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. If you're new, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Subscribe, like, share, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Okay, let's get into today's show. Today, what do we got going on today? Well, today is it's a pretty slow day for Bitcoin news. Uh, one narrative that I do see kind of cropping up here is a lot of people, and this is not Bitcoin centric, this is macro. So if you guys are new to the show, you know, we talk about Bitcoin, but from a macro lens, I probably, the first macro Bitcoin podcast uh, started back in 2016. And the whole time I've been talking about money and macro and and just recently been getting a little bit more into geopolitics. That's become a big part of the show as well, uh, because, you know, as Bitcoin takes over, there's going to be some pretty big macroeconomic and geopolitical shifts that come along with that um, or not because of it necessarily, but along with it. So anyways, that's how the show has progressed. <laughs> That's what I do here. So uh, the the one narrative that I saw this morning was a lot of people starting to say, in 2023, as it becomes apparent that CPI is slowing down, then the market is going to do X Y Z. You know, in a few months when Bitcoin when CPI is slowing down X Y Z, I've seen that all over the place, and. I mean, my response to that is like, it has been slow now for six months on the show right here. We've been talking about all along how inflation was transitory, driven 90% or more by supply chain issues, and it was going to be transitory. Then in July, you know, we had that huge move down from, it was over 1% in June, the CPI month over month. And it crashed all the way down to zero in July. And that was peak CPI. I called it then, and I've been calling it every month since. If you take, you know, we're tomorrow, we're getting the big CPI print for December, which has, I think, more than 50% chance that it'll be negative. I'll go, I'll go with two thirds chance that it will be a negative number. Um, and only probably a 10% chance that it will be positive. You know, it could be zero or negative. That's what I'm looking at for CPI and stuff. And if you add that into the last, the previous five months, then you have a six month of 1%. If it is zero in December, if it's below, you know, zero in December, it's going to be less than 1% for those six months. And of course, a six month at less than 1%, what what is that annualized? You know, it's less than 2%. So for six months, we've had really, really low CPI. And I do expect some negative numbers here coming out at the beginning of this year. And then people are going to say, oh yeah, the 
CPI is slowing down. No, no, no. Oh, God. They're so late to the party here. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting about CPI. Um, let's take a look at some charts. I'll post them in the Telegram. That is my home base. So, guys, uh, I won't, I'll try not to forget you. It's hard when I'm going through these and I'm in the zone and, and I forget to post the chart. So, um, But I usually remember. It just takes me a couple minutes. All right. So this is going to be the Bitcoin chart. I am putting it into the Telegram now. And it's red on the day, but it's not. There we go. Sharing a tab. It's red on the day, but it's not bad. We are approaching this resistance zone that I've been talking about for a long time. We'll see if we can get up and above that. Um, Let's bring the 50-day moving average out here. And we are well above the 50-day moving average. Nice and and steady, too. Like, if you go back to October when we broke out, you know, before FTX, that really broke up quickly. I mean, we went, let's see, from the 50-day, we went up about, 7% 7% in two days above the 50-day moving average. So that's a pretty big pop above the 50-day moving average. Now, since that first day that we closed, we're only 4% above it, and it's taken a week to get 4% above the 50-day moving average. So, you know, it's moving steady, slow and steady, much more sustainable type of movement here. So I like it. I like the way the chart is looking. Of course, man, would it be nice to see like a $3,000 candle? (laughs) Man, would that be nice? Uh, That would, you know, just light a fire under this this market. We've been really struggling to get uh, some excitement in the Bitcoin price and in the Bitcoin ecosystem and and in the Bitcoin idea and asset. And so... Man, if we had a three thousand dollar day, dollar day, just imagine what would happen. But um, okay, let's take a look at some more macro stuff. Let's take a look at the dollar. It is holding strong at one hundred three, so not not terrible here. Um, much stronger than what do- dollar doom and gloomers think. Um, so we'll see. Nothing really to report there. Like I said, it's it's kind of a blah day in the markets. Let's take a look at oil. Oil is up on the day pretty nicely, 4%. That's a pretty good little bounce, but we could, we'll see where it goes. I mean, we, I would be, actually, I would be a little bit more surprised with lower lows at this point. Uh, we have a higher low right now that, you know, right around the beginning of the year. And so, we could, I wouldn't be surprised to see it up at 90 here in a couple of weeks. So um, we do have an oil story that I'm going to talk about here in a little bit. S&P 500, big gap higher, pushing higher right now. So this is interesting. We'll have to see how this goes. Let me take the log scale off of here. So as you can see, this, this trend line, di- diagonal trend line, just boom, 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 four points of contact, almost to the dollar or to the tick, whatever you want to call this, um, o- almost perfect on this trend line until we got to December 13th. And at that time I was saying, you know, I think this is a real breakout. We're breaking this trend line. We're breaking some of the 
um, moving averages. Let's see, was this, we were well above the 50 day moving average. I think that was also, was that the hundred day or the 200 day that we were breaking at that time? Yeah, it was the 200 day. So you can see that uh, we were breaking this 200 day and this diagonal trend line looking really good going into the Santa rally, right? At the end of the year, typically the last two weeks of the year are fairly good for the stock market. So I was thinking at that moment, Hey, we're, we're going to rally out of this and this is going to, you know, we're going to break this trend line and it's going to look uh, really good going into the new year and stuff. Of course that didn't happen. And we pulled back down, but look now we're back above the 50 day trying to get to that 200 day, almost at a golden cross, you know, that where the 50 crosses above the 200 day is a golden cross. So we're getting close to a golden cross. We're gapping higher on the day, getting closer to that diagonal trend line. If we can break the 200, the diagonal trend line at the golden cross, I mean, guys, this, this could be gangbusters here. And this is just from a technical perspective. But remember, my thing for 2023 is everyone's saying recession, recession, recession. I think there's a there's a possibility that we'll see a recession in the U.S. But it's more likely than not that it will be a mild recession if there is a recession. So I would put, let's put some odds on this. Uh, let's say uh, 25%, there's no, no textbook recession in 2023. 50% that it's a mild recession and 25% that it is a more severe recession. So those are kind of the probabilities I'm working with. So 75%, it will be a mild recession or better. And the stock, stock market is looking good, signaling technically on the technical analysis could break higher and you know uh, is looking very, very healthy if it can break through in the next uh, couple of weeks, you know, break through these levels. I think it will be looking very, very nice. And that's correlated with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been, well, psychologically held down with stocks due to Fed hikes. But remember, I, I pointed this out the other day. Uh, if you go back to May 12th, we're above where we were back last May. And we've been told that the Fed has hiked so much. The Fed is trying to crash the stock market. The stock market has to go down and all these all these things. But really, we are above where we were on May 12th, and we're looking more, much more bullish than obviously we were on May 12th. So, um, yeah, I'm thinking I'm still, I'm going to be the holdout here. Most, I would say most people, most analysts and most uh, commentators are on the recessionary bandwagon. They call this the most anticipated re recession in history. So I'm going to go on the other side and I'm going to say, no, I think 2023 is going to be good for stocks, bonds, and Bitcoin. We're going to see rallies in all three of them. So, all right, let's take a look at what other things we want. We can just take a quick look at gold. I don't watch this very often, but I'm just going to zoom out here for the weekly. It's been having a few good weeks, and this will also be correlated with Bitcoin. Again, I, ex I expect this probably be a good year for gold as well. Um, stocks, bonds, Bitcoin, and gold, all, everything will rally this year. Because 2022 was such a bad year. Everything went down. Everything. Stocks, bonds, Bitcoin, real estate, gold. So it's not a given that all of these things will have great years. But 
it's very rare that you have these multiple year pullbacks in these types of things. Even during the great financial crisis, um, I think it was like 18 months was the total pullback. But uh, anyways, so that's what I have for macro charts. Let's get into, well, hold on. Let me post this gold chart and then also say that gold is still below the 2011 high. And let's see how what percentage below that is. So right now at current market prices, it's 2.2% below the 2011 high for gold. I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. That's why you can't be a gold bug. I was a gold bug back through 2011. And when it stopped going up, so kind of some of the impetus behind me finding Bitcoin was 2011 gold had a blow off top and Ron Paul was just totally railroaded by the system. And it was a very despondent time. I'm like, I need to reevaluate my investment thesis here of what's, what's going to happen. And lo and behold, I find Bitcoin through some of those people, you know, like the free state project type people. And uh, yeah, that's how I ran into Bitcoin around 2012, started looking into it and whatever. But now when I look at the gold chart here today and I see that it's still 2% below the 2011 high, I'm just so thankful that I got into Bitcoin when I did. I found Bitcoin when I did. And it made sense to me coming from the gold bug side with an economics degree, you know, it, it made sense. So um, yeah, I'm very thankful I found Bitcoin. And if I can help people through this show, through talking about Bitcoin, if I can uh, help people find their own path, to you know, having understanding at least about these things, not necessarily selling their house and buying Bitcoin or anything. But it, you know, if I can help people find some light at the end of the tunnel or some understanding, that makes my day. And you know, I really like when I hear people say that that hey, you were very influential back in 2016 and 17 on my introduction to the space. And so uh, you know, that's a very very good feeling, and that's the primary reason why I do this show. So. All right, um, let's go into this article. I did post it in Telegram. It's by Michael Leibowitz. I've interviewed him for FedWatch before. Um, traditional guy, though, you know, traditional financial system guy, uh, wealth advisor type. Um, he does have, like, he's a little bit more curious, and that's what I like about him is he, he's traditional guy, but he does question some of his assumptions. But anyway, I thought this was an interesting article because it kind of points out the way people are are viewing the Fed, what they want to happen. And Michael Leibowitz here, he's writing to his clients. So these are like lay people that he's writing to. Um, the people listening today, listening on this show are probably not lay people. They're probably, you know, more educated in this, following money, understanding what money is. So uh, this is for a different type of uh, audience, but I think it, I'm going to try to pull apart this. When I read through it the first time, I was like, man, this is a good one if you can read between the lines. So that's what I'm going to try to do here. Um, it's it's not that long of an article. It's about a page and a half or something. Uh, so let me let me read through this. So the, the headline is lower stock prices are the Fed's goal. You read that right. The Fed wants lower stock prices. 
Fed members will not say it as bluntly as we do in our title, but they have a long-held belief that stock prices directly impact the economy and, therefore, inflation. Thus, in the Fed's efforts to quell inflation, it makes sense that they are likely using their stock market lever, specifically lower stock prices, to help improve the efficacy of monetary policy. So, yeah, this is... I'll just point out from the very first paragraph. If they want to quell inflation, they should just reduce the money supply. That is seriously what inflation is. There's no, there's no like if, ands, or buts, or there's no questions. There's no um, mystery behind this. If this is inflation, if this is actual money printing, just reduce the money supply, right? They don't have to attempt to quell inflation or have an effort to quell inflation. They could just do it. But everybody knows fundamentally that they can't just do that. They don't, they don't have control of the money supply. They can't just pull back the supply of money. Everybody knows that intuitively. But instead of like running with that and trying to figure out, okay, well, what do they do? What is money supply and all these things? People just throw out any sort of uh, empirical observations they can have. And they go back to their theory and they say, oh, no, M2 is money supply. So let's continue reading. Before we delve into recent Fed comments about asset prices and describe the groundwork that Ben Bernanke laid for the Fed's stock market theory, we share a quote, a quote from Chair Janet Yellen from September 2016. It could be useful to be able to intervene directly in assets where the prices have a more direct link to spending decisions, end quote. That's an interesting quote. So, you know, directly into the stock market. I mean, the Japanese do this. The Swiss National Bank do this. The Israeli National Bank does this. Um, other central banks are involved directly in the stock market. But I guess the Swiss National Bank, they aren't buying like Swiss stocks, they're buying US stocks. So that isn't the same thing. But the Japanese, they're buying Japanese ETFs and things. So they're directly in there with asset prices, um, trying to push those asset prices up to cause this wealth effect that we will read about here. All right, December 2022 FOMC minutes. Within the minutes of the December 15th 2022 FOMC meeting comes the following statement. Participants noted that because monetary policy worked importantly through financial markets and unwarranted easing in financial conditions, especially if driven by a misperception by the public of committee's reaction function, would complicate the committee's efforts to restore price stability. And the bolded section is a very important part. Because monetary policy worked importantly through financial markets. Now, why would, why would this monetary policy work through financial markets instead of the monetary market, the, the actual plumbing of the system and, and credit and money supply? You know, financial markets are the financialization on top of the monetary system on top of the economy, like stock market, basically. Uh, so the, well, stock market and CDOs and uh, DLOs and all, all these other type of derivatives, th these are the financial markets. And so 
monetary policy works importantly through financial markets. How does that exactly work? How do they mechanically influence financial markets? How do they manage that? Well, they don't. They don't do that. They actually do it through narrative. So the Fed will say this over and over. They won't say it bluntly and be like, we don't control money supply. We try to influence people with our narratives. Um, they don't ever say that bluntly. I mean, Ben Bernanke did say that almost in his first ever uh, Brookings Institute speech after uh, his tenure as Fed chair. Uh, he said that monetary policy is 98% signaling. So that's pretty close to saying we don't do money. We just do narratives. But this also because monetary policy worked importantly through financial markets. That says the same thing. Okay, uh, continuing here. More straightforwardly, financial markets are an important way monetary policy is transmitted to the broader economy. As such, higher stock prices and unwarranted easing of financial conditions, driven by a belief the Fed will pivot to lower rates, make it more challenging for the Fed to tackle inflation. And what did I say about this earlier? I said um, that... Okay, a belief in the Fed will pivot makes it more challenging for the Fed to pivot. And that's because they're front running, right? How does the Fed come to the end of their rate, hike, rate hiking cycle, which they told us is quote unquote cumulative? They're looking at their hiking cycle as a cumulative effect. So when they're coming to the end, you know, it's, it's all, it's not like they're looking at one well, they used to say they're look, they're going one meeting at a time. That's what they used to say. Now they've switched it in the last couple meetings to cumulative effect. So they're looking at where they are in the hiking cycle compared to where they want to be and where they started from. Right. So they're looking at the cumulative effect. So we know that they're looking and they're seeing an end to rate hikes. They're seeing an end to rate hikes. So how do they get to that end? without being front run by the market. You know, the market will say, oh, that's the last rate hike or, oh, the Fed, that's uh, you know, one more rate hike after this. So it's almost boom times again. And so, that, that you know, they're being front run by the market. The way they've handled this so far is they sent Powell out there at Jackson Hole and he scrapped his prepared remarks and he went with hawkish, Boom, 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 trying to hammer the market saying, no, you guys will be hurt by us. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to hurt you. We're trying to hurt demand and you will be hurt. We will do this. We will continue until the job is done. And so it scared the market and the market, you know, fell. Then a couple meetings after that, I think, was it the November meeting? I'd have to pull up a chart to see. Hold on. Okay, when was this that he came out? Yeah, I think it was the, sorry, it was the December meeting. The stocks were rallying uh, when they dropped the initial press release. And then he came out in his press conference and he said, no, 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 this is bad. We don't want stocks to rally. We are going to continue hiking until the job is done. And then the market sold off again. So they're, they're trying to use uh, this type of badgering of the market to keep it down so that it won't front run. But just look at the stock market. Look at this. Let me go back to this tab. So 
if you look at the stock market, I mean, it's definitely not looking super bearish. I mean, we have a higher high, a higher low here about to break out from this, this trend line. I mean, this is not looking bearish at all. We're at the same general level that we were all the way back in May. So what is that? Nine months ago, seven months ago. We're in the same general area. Um, so all of this badgering hasn't really worked. People continue to try to front run the Fed. So I think this is interesting, this article uh, that I'm going through here. And let me show you the headline again. This is from RIA Advice at uh, realinvestmentadvice.com. And yeah, so he says that uh, the Fed will pivot to lower rates, making it uh, the, or the, the belief that Fed will pivot to lower rates. Make, makes it more challenging for the Fed to tackle inflation because they're front, being front run. But what does this have to do with inflation? Let's tie this in here together. So in lay terms, lower stock prices can help the Fed get inflation back to its 2% objective. Jerome Powell and other Fed members have made similar statements. For example, on Friday, August 26, 2022, Powell made an exceptionally hawkish speech about raising interest rates or rising interest rates. The S&P 500 fell over 3% that day. I think that was Jackson Hole. As investors expected a more market-friendly tone. On the following trading day, Minnesota Fed President Neil Kashkari responded, I was actually happy to see how Chair Powell's Jackson Hole speech was received. Kashkari is cheering on lower stock prices. Ben Bernanke coins the wealth effect. In 2003, Ben Bernanke laid the groundwork for the wealth effect. His theory associates stock prices with the transmission of monetary policy to the economy. The transmission of monetary policy to the economy. I mean, just as I'm reading through this, I mean, I think this is crazy. All right. I don't think this. I'm just trying to explain how they think. And I think there is something to it. Like, yeah, when the Powell comes out and is very hawkish, the stock market falls 3%. I mean, that is observable empirical data, you know. Uh, so there is something to this. And I just want everyone to, to, to look at this from a certain perspective. So anyway, in 2013, Bernanke laid the groundworks for the wealth effect. His theory associates stock prices with the transmission of monetary policy to the economy. In a speech entitled Monetary Policy and the Stock Market, Some Empirical Results, Bernanke states, the logic goes as as follows. Easier monetary policy, for example, raises stock prices. That's a leap, right? You have to explain why that would be. But you get the connection here. Higher stock prices increase the wealth of households, prompting consumers to spend more a result known as the wealth effect. Moreover, high stock prices effectively reduce the cost of capital for firms, stimulating increased capital investment. Increases in both types of of spending, consumer spending and business spending, tend to stimulate the economy. It's logical, okay? It's logical, but we, we... they jumped the conclusion or the, the step that they jumped over here is easier monetary policy, for example, raises stock prices. How does that exactly work? So, all right, 
uh, Bernanke argues that additional wealth resulting from stock market gains results in more household spending. While he doesn't say it in this speech, the wealth effect also works in reverse. Policy and stocks are a two-way street. Easy Fed policy, including lower rates and QE, tends to correlate with higher stock prices. Equally important and apropos for today, higher rates and QT are associated with lower stock prices. The graph below quantifies monetary policy to show the correlation between stock prices and the degree of policy. The degree of Fed policy, green or red, is derived from the level of the real funds, Fed funds, and recent changes in the Fed's balance sheet. It's not a perfect indicator. Well, thank you for saying that because really it doesn't, um, this, so let, let me just go through this chart. So if you're listening on the podcast or whatever, or on Telegram right now, um, you can see that they get hawkish. The red is where they're hawkish or they're tightening. And the green is when they're dovish and easing. Now he wants to say that stock market crashes follow periods of tightness and stock market gains follow periods of easing, being dovish. But there's an equally uh, valid way to describe this because, look, during this whole time, uh, from 2004, 5 up to 2008, stocks are going up, but the Fed is tightening. And that's not a short amount of time. That's four years of tightening monetary policy. And the the markets are going higher, okay? Only right at the near, very near the top, they turn dovish. Yet the market continues to fall. Then the market turns around, it bottoms, and it turns around, and it comes up. Um, the market gets tight. There's a couple little, some volatility in there, but it doesn't correlate really to anything. Um, and that's it. I mean, there's not a lot of correlation. To me, what this, what I would say is, that this chart shows the Fed follows what the market is doing. They follow the market. They, they are The reason why it correlates so well is because the Fed is just following the data. It's not the data following the Fed. It's the Fed following the data. And that's equally as viable of an explanation here. Hey, what's up, guys? Just breaking in here on the edit real quick because I was not concise with what I'm trying to say. Uh, with the wealth effect. So what Bernanke and what Powell and these other central planners think is that the central planners act first. They come first. They act. Their easing creates a bull market in stocks. And then the rising stocks make people act a certain way and go out and spend money and all this stuff. Um, When in reality, what's happening is that, you know, the market is in charge. It's almost exactly backwards. So first comes people's kind of uh, feeling of economic well-being. That turns around. People start at spending a little bit more. The stock prices go up. And then the Fed follows. That's, it's the exact opposite of what the Fed believes. And we've looked at this different times when we talk about the interest rate fallacy as well. When people think lowering the interest rate is stimulatory, rising, raising the interest rate is slowing the economy down. And that has turned out to be exactly the opposite of what we find. Like I said, there's four-year period where the Fed is hiking, but stock market is going up. This has it is no connection. Okay, this the Fed follows what the market is doing. And where does this uh, misconception come from? It comes from people just 
They believe in the omnipotence of central planners. They believe in this mythology of the Fed. Even the people in Bitcoin and in sound money economics and, you know, Austrian economics and all this stuff, they still believe, they fight against the omnipotence of the Fed. They say the Fed doesn't know, you know, it's messing things up. When in reality, what they should be thinking is that it's the psychology of the market. People believe in this deity called the chairman of the Federal Reserve and that they have so much power over everything. But really, it's exactly backwards of what Bernanke thought the wealth effect was. So it's not Fed stocks activity, it's activity stocks Fed. And that is borne out in, in all of the charts and everything. So, uh, okay, back to myself. <laughs> Summary, Bernanke and Yellen acknowledge that influencing stock prices is crucial for the Fed to help them accomplish their goals. Powell is following in their footsteps and, in our opinion, trying to push stock prices lower to help ensure inflation is slayed. Well, what did I just talk about earlier? CPI is already very low over the last six months. There's no need to slay inflation. It has been slayed. If this is, you know, CPI, there's no reason to slay CPI because CPI has been slayed already. So what are they doing? They're not doing anything. Like what happens if CPI stays around 0% month on month and then we come up to June or July and we have CPI around 1%. Does anything that they're doing today affect that? No. Did anything they do back in 2022 affect that? Not really. Not really. They really didn't do anything. They just got on the bandwagon. They're about 12 months late. If you want to show me that the Fed actually causes a reaction in the market, then you have to show me where they lead the market by 6 to 12 months. Show me where they lead the market by 6 to 12 months. They don't. They always follow the market by 6 to 12 months. So anyway, that's enough with that. Let's uh, take a look at this uh, WTI story. WTI extends gains despite massive crude build production increases. Oil prices rallied overnight despite a huge crude. In oh, I got to share this tab. Sorry, guys. Still getting used to this. Uh, oil prices rallied overnight despite a huge crude inventory build reported by API with traders shrugging it off as likely driven by the impact of nationwide deep freeze and refinery shut-ins distorting the data. Additional optimism over China's demand outlook after the government issued a bumper batch of import quotas, spurring hopes of improved crude consumption, offset the optics of the crude build. Quote, the perceived demand pull that's expected as an important word, from China is superseding the rise in crude inventories from the API. We note that there was a more than 15 million barrel increase in the Gulf Coast. Much of the rise in inventories due to the disruption in refinery operations from a deep freeze had not materialized in data yet. So we are seeing that come through now. The SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, saw a drain of only 800,000 barrels last week, the smallest since January of 2022. Bear in mind that the EIA's January outlook expect combined gasoline, diesel, and jet inventories to rise 9% in 2023, led by a 2.8% jump 
in refining throughput. U.S. crude production rose last week to 12.2 million barrels per day, equal to its post-COVID highs. And you can see this chart here. I will copy and paste that into the Telegram. This is showing the crude oil production. I think, I mean, this, of course, I always say this about crude oil production is that this is despite the globalists, (laughs) Davos and Biden administration pushing down on, you know, trying to suppress the U.S. oil production. We're still near the highs. I mean, we're we're within striking distance of all-time highs, but uh, we are at post-COVID highs and, and continually trending higher. So that will probably continue. Overall, this isn't anything amazing. I wanted to, I wanted to point out that the ex, it's just the expected China open and all these people. I mean, how long have they been expecting China to reopen? It's been since March, right? Wasn't Shanghai March of 2022? Then and they were expecting Shanghai opening to add all this demand that didn't materialize. Then they're like, oh, but there's other cities, and so now other cities have to open up. And then other cities opened up. Then, then of course, it was the whole country on lockdown or whatever. And so the Chinese just continually, they're just spraying and praying. You know, let's open up. Let's close down. Let's do this quota. Let's do that. Let's do this stimulus program. You know, their hair is on fire over there. The economy is crashing. And they're just trying to do whatever they can. And people are so set in their ways of thinking about China. It's understandable because over the last couple decades, China has been the marginal growth in the world. People could look to China to continue to grow and add demand. But those days are over. I mean, we might get a little bump. We might get a little bump in 2023, 2024, you know. There might be a little effect. But it's not going to be like China is going to save the economy from global recession or anything. Those days are over. So anyway, gasoline inventory is going higher, even though China has been opening up. So we'll see as the data progresses in the next couple months. But really, you know, I don't expect any big effect from the Chinese reopening. Um, I expect oil to maintain roughly the same price. So, all right. Um, So this was a story posted in the Telegram chat. Uh, I thought it was interesting because it's what I talked about yesterday on the stream. So I did a morning stream and listened to Powell live and commented on this. Um, The big thing from Powell's speech yesterday was he said, oh, we're not going to use the central bank for climate political policies, you know, political agenda. That is the realm of the government, the elected officials, not of the central bank. And if you want to have central bank independence, you shouldn't want, you shouldn't get involved with this politics because you're going to have, like if the, you know, the ESG is mainly a Davos globalist Marxist type thing. And if those lose to popular, to populists around the world, you know, that is going to undermine the independence of these central banks. Because they're going to say, look, the central bank, you're po- you're doing political stuff. We have to now come in and regulate you. You know, as soon as the power will shift, the central bank will lose its independence. So don't get involved in this political stuff. 
is what Powell was saying. And I said, this was a huge bomb. Like yesterday when I was listening to this, I was like, wow, he just said that out loud. Like, boom, that was right smack in the face of Davos. And uh, anyway, so now this is being written by the Daily Mail. Jerome Powell warns Federal Reserve should not tackle climate change and social issues as he slapped down woke colleagues. <laughs> what a great headline, man. Uh, Federal Reserve... Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell cautioned that institutions like the Fed must resist the temptation to try and tackle social issues such as climate change in a speech in Sweden Tuesday. Powell, 69, gave his remarks to a forum on central bank independence sponsored by the Swedish Central Bank. The Federal Reserve's independence from political issues is central to its ability to battle inflation, but requires it to stay out of issues like climate change that are beyond its congressionally established mandate. Taking on new goals, however worthy, such as climate or social policy, he said, without a clear statutory mandate would undermine the case for our independence. Notoriously, in 2022, President Joe Biden had Sarah Bloom Raskin, one of his nominees to the Fed's Board of Governors, withdrawn or withdrew after failing to gain enough support. Raskin generated strong opposition from the outset from Republicans who said she would use the post to steer the Fed toward oversight policies that would penalize banks who lend to fossil fuel companies. Okay, that's not at all what happened. (laughs) I wrote an article about Sarah Bloom Raskin at the time for Bitcoin Magazine. And that's not at all what happened. When she was questioned She said she would not do that, but it was her past comments and her past writings, her like academic writings, that she said that this would be a good use of monetary policy or rules from the Fed to steer stuff for climate change, like away from oil companies, just using it as a political tool. And But when she was asked about it in the hearings for her nomination, she denied, denied, denied. She's like, oh, no, 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 no. That, I would never do that if I was at the Fed. <laughs> of course, even at the time, I was saying that she was being opposed by Wall Street. You know, she was being opposed by the money interests out there. Not the Republicans. The, maybe the Republicans just because she was a Democrat nominee and she had some, like, iffy beliefs and her husband by the way is jamie raskin who is you know one of the biggest j6 people in the house i think he was in the house in the house of representatives so he was a massive democrat politician in on the j6 committee like the most political partisan you could have was is her husband he was screaming from the rooftops about getting Donald Trump, right? And so, yeah, of course, the Republicans are going to have some problem with his wife becoming high up vice chair at the Fed, of course, especially in the past when she has said these statements. And they would ask her, she'd, oh, no, 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 no. I don't believe that. Oh, I would never do that. I mean, it was crazy. You know, just total gaslighting. And then uh, Cynthia Loomis she had a, she was i think the nail in the coffin for Sarah Bloom Raskin so that ties it into bitcoin as as well right with the congressman from Wyoming Cynthia Loomis big 
she's a big Bitcoiner. I mean, I guess she's a crypto person, but she's mainly Bitcoin. And she asked like, look, I have people in my, in my constituency that have been trying to get this uh, certain Fed account or whatever they have to get uh, permission from the Fed to be a startup payment processor. Okay. And they've been waiting for two, three years to get this. And I think this might be from like Avanti Capital with um, Caitlin Long. Maybe I think she's in Wyoming, right? And that's Cynthia Loomis. And it might be like Caitlin Long's thing that Cynthia Loomis brought up to Sarah Bloom Raskin. See all these uh, dots that Bitcoin connects. Anyway, so um, she said, how come you served on a board of a startup in Colorado or something? And they had been trying to get this account for two years. You join the board and they get it in two weeks. What did you pull some strings for them? You know, that is a major ethical violation, right? And so Cynthia Loomis had done the research. She had done the study. She looked into it. And um, then Sarah Bloom Raskin was like, oh, no, I never talked to the Fed when I was a board member. And she's like, oh, really? Well, I have this letter that you sent. You know, we got this from FOIA. And I have this letter that you sent to the Board of Governors or the Fed of you that you sent this to for this uh, certain account for this company, you know, one week after you became a board member and a, a shareholder. And I mean, just slammed her down. So Cynthia Loomis really did put the nail in the coffin for Sarah Bloom Raskin by bringing up ethical complaints. But she was being stiff armed by Wall Street and by special interests, you know, those type of money interests and Republicans, of course, because of her political association with her husband, uh, who was is one of the most corrupt and, and dirty Democrats that is out there. So um, anyway, I thought this was an interesting story. I'll link it in the show notes for you guys. Um, and that's going to do it. I'm going to open it up here, the mic to the guys on Telegram. If you guys have any comments, subjects, uh, you know, feedback for me, whatever, uh, you can bring it up now. And uh, I will relay it. I'm not sure if it's going to come through on Restream, but I will relay it. And hopefully um, it will come through. Let me just go to this tab. All right. So any hands up over here in Telegram? Kind of a wide-ranging show here today. <laughs> uh, I need to have more of just have one topic and stick to it instead of three, four topics. All right, going once, going twice. All right, guys, well, thanks for joining me. Check out BitcoinMarkets.com, YouTube, BTC Market Update. If you're, not, if you're not subscribed on Rumble, but you have a Rumble account, go to Rumble. It's the Bitcoin and Markets channel. Make sure you're subscribed. As soon as I get to 100 subscribers, I can start live streaming over there. Um, but that's going to be it, guys. Have a great day, and uh, I will check you guys tomorrow. Bye.